Welcome to In the Booth, a Frederick News Post podcast exploring the 2016 races to represent Frederick County. This has been an election year like no other, both around the county and around the country. Here, we'll explore issues important to Frederick County voters, from third-party candidates to overcrowded roads and classrooms to presidential politics. I'm Danielle Gaines, here with my co-host, Andy Schatz. Hello. And we are In the Booth. Gladhill Furniture is the only place you need to visit. Save big by taking half off all leather furniture store-wide. And this month, you can also take advantage of 24 months 0% financing. Stop by and visit one of our expert design consultants and get luxury for less. Dan Cox has eight reasons he's running for Congress, his eight children. The first-time congressional candidate says he wants to leave a better future for them. Cox is seeking to represent Maryland's 8th district in the U.S. House of Representatives. If elected, he wants to impose a flat tax in which all individuals pay the same rate regardless of income, and he wants to reduce funding and programs for five federal agencies he considers bloated, the Internal Revenue Service and the Departments of Commerce, Education, Energy, and Housing and Urban Development. At the forefront of his campaign is a call to widen Interstate 270, though he doesn't support toll lanes to make that happen. Cox, who owns a law firm in Emmitsburg, stopped by in the booth to talk about these issues and more. Welcome. Hi, it's good to be here. Thanks for coming. Um, Well, probably not all of our listeners have had the opportunity to meet you yet. Could you just take a minute and tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, sure. Uh, My name is Dan Cox, and I'm from Frederick County, running for Congress in District 8, which is a very uh, large district, goes from uh, the Pennsylvania border all the way down to the D.C. border, and it uh, encompasses much of Frederick County, um, southern Carroll County, and uh, much of Montgomery County, particularly southern Montgomery County. And, you know, I, I grew up here, uh, was honored and, uh, and uh, been privileged to go to Mount St. Mary's College, um, studied there for three years, finished up at the University of Maryland University College, um, and then I, I went on to law school, uh, Married prior to law school, prior to um, uh, finishing uh, my degree, even married, and uh, my wife and I began a family here in Frederick County, and um, we now have eight children. So I always say, I'm, mm. when they ask, why are you running? Well, I have eight reasons, because of the future of our country, and I think that our kids are the lifeblood of the future, and so I thought I would um, uh, bring, bring a voice for the, for the children, for my kids, for everyone's families. Um, uh, we have a, uh, an amazing opportunity with uh, um, our economic engine to bring back jobs. I'd like to do that. I'd also like to try to solve some practical issues like widening I-270. And why now? What was it that made you think this was the right time to run? Well, you know, it's an open seat. Uh, Congressman Van Hollen has served in the seat for some time, and he has uh, uh, decided to run for United States Senate, and so the seat is open. Um, I am uh, uh, excited about that opportunity because uh, when you look at the demographics, you see the District 8 is, is, is trending more uh, center, I think. And even though it's heavily Democratic, uh, we've got a large portion of it, which is Frederick and Carroll County. And so since I woke up one day and found myself gerrymandered, so to speak, into District 8, um, and I, I heard uh, again that uh, Mr. Van Hollen was running for Senate so the seat would be open. I thought, you know, this is, a, this is a good time. This is a good time to bring a voice out there for Frederick County and for uh, 
uh, for the entire district. And, you know, it's interesting. I, I began my – I think I'm the only candidate in recent history for District 8 that actually has lived in all three counties um, because I began my life down in Tacoma Park. And then as a young man, my dad, uh, who's a minister, moved up to um, Frederick to, um, to work in, in, in the church up here. So. Um, and you've served on a town council before. Um, yes, what do you think about politics on, on this level, on this slightly bigger stage, you know, for a whole congressional district? Well, you know, it's, it's uh, people are politics, and that's the exciting thing about our system. It really is uh, a blessing of, of freedom that we have, that everybody can be a part and that everyday people can get involved. Um, I do have experience, although I'm not a career politician. And, you know, I, I enjoyed serving Congressman Bartlett in his uh, 1994 congressional campaign and worked my way up in that campaign. We were excited to win uh, with about 67% of the vote. Congressman Bartlett is um, a, uh, an example to me of someone who perseveres and uh, even in his um, uh, retirement has stayed active, and I, I respect that. And so, you know, he's been an inspiration in that regard for our county. Obviously, now I'm in a different district, and I think that, you know, the opportunity is there. I, I did serve um, in a council that had a, a smaller budget, about $1.1 or so million, dollars, and, um, but we handled everyday issues. We handled issues like traffic, and that's what District 8 is facing every day when you have 200,000 people sitting in a parking lot called I-270. Uh, we have I-70 from Frederick westward bottlenecked every day and um, you know and when I sit in that I think you know something has got to change and it's simple if as a property attorney I've done some easement work and you know if you look at the easements that exist we have the ability to put in two lanes now without having to go through a huge amount of work to get that done and so while the politicians are considering other options I think um, it's it's quite easy to get this done in a short term and then look at all the above options for long-term growth the political atmosphere at the national level is very heated, very divided, uh, perhaps more so than there has been has been in past elections. What gives you um, hope that you would be able to step into Congress and accomplish anything? You know, I am a down-to-earth person in the sense that I, I truly am not a career politician. I have uh, not taken PAC money uh, in this race. My opponent has. Um, he's raised, I believe, a couple hundred thousand dollars um, via PAC money. And, <clears throat> you know, I, 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 don't, um, I don't believe that corporate interests um, uh, should have a, a greater voice than everyday people. And, you know, I'm, I'm certainly pro-business, pro-jobs. I'm a small businessman myself, and I think that that is essential. So I think I can bridge that that gap. I think I can, uh, and, I, and I hope to do it, to unite us on those issues that we all know are essential uh, that we need to, to focus on and, and to resolve um, and respect each other on the issues that we maybe don't agree on. And do you think that could happen regardless of who wins the presidential race? You know, I'm uh, focused on, on my race, um, and I look at the presidential race as, as an option for changing the, you know, everybody, when I talked whether they're Democrat, independent, Republican, everybody has this sense that there is too much corruption in Washington. There's too much of the career politician approach. 
And right now we have an opportunity, I think, nationally. I think people are trending that way. Now we'll see what happens. Um, and, you know, I think that some of the vernacular on both sides of the aisle could be, uh, could be better. But I tell you what, when you look at the issues, for instance, that um, uh, Trump and Pence are speaking about, um, you know, they're filling rallies of tens of thousands of people in the stadiums. And it's resonating. And, you know, I, I know it's a, uh, it's a tough race. I respect that. But I think that as Americans, we can rise to that issue of, of focusing on getting the work done and stopping the name-calling of, you know, this person's a racist and, and, and whatever. That's not a uh, – let's get beyond that. You know, we're adults. I think we can move forward and help the country. Well, it sounds like you support Donald Trump as the party's nominee. Is that an unqualified support, or are there things that, whether topics or his personality or some of the missteps that he's made that you have that you struggle with and, and are um, questioning him about? You know, one of the best speeches I've heard him give was the immigration speech last week, and I, I found it fascinating because Chris Matthews, of, of all people from the media, um, who actually, his wife ran in this race, and unfortunately uh, for her, um, she did not uh, succeed on the, uh, on the other side. But Chris Matthews said, Donald Trump is a genius on the immigration issue. And I found that surprising for somebody who trends Democrat, because what he said was, you know, the issue of immigration has been polarizing uh, in the race, but as to how Donald Trump has tried to explain it uh, particularly in the immigration speech uh, that he gave last week, he's making a lot of sense. And you see people like Democratic pollster's Paul Cadell, who's coming out and saying, you know, let's be honest here. The things Donald Trump is speaking about, 9 out of 10 or even more than that, uh, uh, we all agree on. And, in fact, it doesn't matter what party you're, on, you're, you're in. These are issues that really we should be addressing. So I think it makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, I, I'm... Uh, I'm, I'm just honored and privileged to, to be here and, and to bring my own voice. I, I focus on that. Uh, you know, everyday people are frustrated with Washington. I'm an outsider. That's what my campaign is about. I want to get things done. I don't want to go down there and, and waste my life. You know, I'm a stakeholder. I've got kids I'm raising. I've got one in college. And, uh, you know, I want them to have a bright future and to have the ability to have a job that that actually uh, they can live on and and, um, and not have to see everything go to other states. You talked about the size of the 8th District. Um, what are you doing What are you doing as a candidate to get to learn more about, um, you know, some of the parts of the district that you maybe haven't traveled so much? That's a great question because that's probably the most fascinating part about campaigning uh, and uh, something that is both the most tiring and exciting. I encourage people, whoever you are, if you're interested at all in politics, to go out and, and participate in the party process, participate in the election, because you can meet so many great people, no matter what background you're from. I, I have been uh, thrilled to be uh, recently, just last um, Friday or Thursday, I think it was, in Tacoma Park, uh, Silver Spring border, and I interviewed live um, a, a young lady who lived in the complex where that just blew up because of a gas leak. And <clears throat> she, in Spanish, explained her thanks and also um, 
uh, her thanks for the support, but also the desire that they have to have some of these issues resolved because they're still living in this situation next door and they're, they're scared. And, you know, I've been able to enjoy meeting people like that and to have a conversation. Uh, there's a, a 30-year teacher who was standing there with me who approached me and said, look, you know, anything you can do to help is, is so, th- you know, we're so thankful for that because we feel like um, things are dragging on so slowly here. And so, uh, and this lady was originally from, um, I think she had said Cameroon, I'm not quite sure, but it, it's fascinating. I'm meeting people from all different parts of the district. These are uh, wonderful people, and I tell you, it's, it's an honor to, uh, to travel around and, and to meet the voters and the people that care about our country. And I'll say that it is difficult because it's so, you know, different at times in terms of demographics and, and distance. It, uh, it certainly uh, demonstrates that Maryland's gerrymandering issue is a problem. And I think that that's something I would like to address. That is something that's different from myself and my opponent um, because my opponent uh, helped to draft those lines, those gerrymandered lines, and his, his approach I, as I understand it, is a interstate commission to deal with the issue, which would be, in my view, a bureaucratic appointment on a federal level across state lines, and it would take away from uh, the, the governor and the state of Maryland's authority to correct this issue. I like Governor Hogan's approach, which is a state commission approach uh, to keep things uh, more local and to allow non-politicized individuals to make these uh, recommendations. That's going to be one of our questions in a minute, so I'll just dive into it now. Um, what do you think about the idea of, of a two-state compact where, you, you know, the federal government wouldn't be involved per se, but two states like Maryland and Virginia potentially could get together and decide to do it? That way they kind of offset any gain or loss of Republican or Democrat seats in the Congress. Well, I am, I am uh, going to state my opinion first, but I'll qualify it with the fact that I am not an expert on this issue, so I would like to see expert reports. I would like to review the evidence and, and make an informed judgment. But my general opinion is the Constitution of the United States says very clearly that the issue of drawing congressional lines is up to the states. If we start handing this out to appointed bureaucrats, uh, that are set up through a process that becomes uh, 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 even more disenfranchised from the voters. I think that it doesn't matter what party you're in, it will create a, a concern long-term for our ability to represent ourselves. Um, I think it's crucial to keep things local, and I think that the way to do that um, is to make sure that the states control those lines. Now, you have a concern that, well, then the Democratic states are going to gerrymander and the Republican states are going to gerrymander. Well, the way to resolve that, though, isn't to create more of a gerrymandering concern through, uh, through a, a super state um, bureaucratically appointed commission. I would, I would suggest and argue that you probably should focus instead on independent, non-politicized voices within the state because they are the stakeholders. They're the ones that live there. Um, an example of this... Um, that uh, some would argue, um, uh, well, there are examples of interstate commissions that, um, that some would argue are problematic. I've talked to, for instance, people in Pennsylvania, uh, and um, 
and even people in Maryland are frustrated at some of the water use regulations that are handed down through interstate compacts. And they can't change that with their local congressmen or with uh, their local uh, representation uh, um, in the federal government because these are people that are appointed that are almost untouchable. And so that's a concern, I think. And I would, I would strongly oppose uh, at this point um, any kind of um, interstate compact as unconstitutional. You mentioned Interstate 270 is one of the top transportation mm -hmm. concerns in Frederick County. Uh, tell us a little bit about your specific ideas for addressing the traffic problems there and also about Metro. Well, you know, this is fascinating to me because it's been a frustration for me since I was a kid uh, in terms of I-270. I, I remember some of the adults um, when I was a young man in, in the 80s complaining about having to sit in I-270. I was approached um, by some smart people who are looking at this, um, frankly, in the Democratic Party, as well as people associated with um, the Republicans. Um, but um, uh, the studies show that 80% of the voters in District 8 name that as one of their primary frustrations. And the way I look at it is um, there are easement issues if we go beyond two lanes now. And so my focus is let's get the two lanes in there now and we can make that reversible, no tolls. And that will immediately allow for four lanes going south and then four lanes north, which is very similar to what actually exists as you go down towards um, Rockville and Bethesda. It opens up and there's uh, many times less of a, um, uh, a backup in those areas. But I think that could truly resolve the situation. I think that the argument against that is that um, somehow that's going to attract more traffic and just more bottlenecking. But that's not the evidence that I've seen. For instance, two quick things. When I go to California and I ride the Golden State Parkway, those are 10 lanes on one side of the highway. And I rarely ever um, have a huge amount. I mean, there's backups in LA, obviously. But uh, generally, the ride from LA to San Diego is, is much uh, easier, I think, uh, because the, the highway, the Golden State Highway, accommodates it. Um, and I, I think if you look, the second point is, if you look at the caps on um, growth in Montgomery County, for instance, I think I went to a property, um, a zoning issue, uh, a, a, a planning meeting, and um, the Montgomery County representative indicated that, if I recall correctly, 25% is the cap on growth. They're expecting between 25 and 30 percent growth because they're also um, planning in potential um, influx with moving and such. Um, so when you look at the housing being capped, the, the building being capped at 25 percent, it's already happening and it's already capped. So the lanes are only going to accommodate what is already planned and it won't necessarily attract a whole uh, uh, bigger problem. And I think the, you know, the problem exists now. Anybody who sits in traffic can see it. It's, it's a near disaster for, for most of us. Now, as to Metro, um, tell you what, it's a, uh, it's a needy situation. Um, there are serious problems with the leadership. I'm not an expert in those issues, and so I'm, like, I, I'm wanting to look at the governor's um, commissions and, and his review. Um, I know that he's got some smart people in the transportation department that are working on that, looking at it in conjunction with Washington, D.C. and, and the, um, uh, the, the boards that are involved. Um, 
and it's a complex situation. But I know, for instance, Virginia is expanding Metro, and it's creating more of a problem, from my understanding. Now, I'm not criticizing what they're doing. I know they're trying to handle the traffic issue. But if we were to do what Virginia's doing, I'm already hearing that everybody's upset about the added burden on these trains that are so old they can't keep them running. Uh, and they're running them more now. So I think there's some major leadership needs uh, that needs to be examined. And I think we're smart enough to get it done, and I do think it needs to be approached. And I would make national security, uh, excuse me, traffic and national security issue um, in, you know, if I were to be elected, because I think it's that important. Here we are, one of the greatest nations on the face of the earth. We live in a great area on the face of the earth, and we can't get anywhere. It's just not, it, it doesn't uh, connect with common sense. So I don't know if I answered it fully, but I think Metro is certainly an issue. Do you get to ride Metro often, and do you see some of the frustrations that other riders have expressed? I have, and I have learned to avoid it as much as possible. I'll be frank. Um, I used to love, when I was a kid, I used to love riding Metro. I used to beg, hey, you know, let's take the Metro when we go down to D.C., but um, not anymore. No, it's, it's um, it, you know, every time I've tried to take the Metro at rush hour, it's been a near disaster. Um, just so many people trying to get on, and, and, and you, it just, uh, and then you hear of a track being closed. It's a mess. Mm-hmm. Um, switching gears a little bit, I wanted to talk to you about um, criminal justice reform. It's been a big issue on the state level in the past couple of years. Do you think that there are justice reforms that are necessary on a federal level, on a national level? Yes, I do. Mm-hmm. I think uh, we need to be careful that we're not letting felons, dangerous, violent felons out into the streets. I'm concerned about that. But I do like how Senator Huff and Senator Reedy um, from Frederick and Carroll counties have been working on this, apparently with Governor Hogan, and have come up with some smart plans that I think has passed in a bipartisan fashion in Maryland. Hmm. Um, and you know, these are issues that we need to examine because I, my understanding is as a, as a legal practitioner, I've had the opportunity to be aware that our prisons are, um, are serious concerns, both for those in the prison and for those of us who live near them. Um, and I won't go into too much detail with that, but uh, we're talking about um, a need to make sure that this is reformed in a, um, in a, an, in a social justice manner so that people are um, understanding that they, um, you know, that they have the, the opportunities that uh, that civil society provides people who rehabilitate. Do you think the federal government is doing enough to fight heroin and opioid addiction? No, but I do like how it's becoming an issue. That's made that's one of the campaign issues I started out with, and it still is a, a, a front and center part of my concern. Uh, heroin and opioids are killing more people every day and uh, in, in our state than accidental you know car deaths it's I believe still the number one killer and that's got to stop um, I like some of the programs that are being suggested um, I, I supported the CARA Act and I would um, support uh, programs similar to that that uh, provides opportunities for state-based and, and, and private-based approaches as well as uh, governmental approaches 
to, to try to solve this problem. And what do you think about um, legalization of marijuana on a federal level? Well, that's a loaded question. I mean, I look at Colorado as a concern on that issue. Um, my understanding is that um, drugged driving deaths are way up in Colorado. The people that I've spoken with that previously supported f um, blanket legalization in Colorado uh, are now backing away from that, and they don't know what to do because it's, it's not something that is um, an easy political issue. Um, you know, I, I oppose, um, uh, I'm very much opposed to the kind of dispensers that are proposed in, in some of our areas here where you can go and, and put in a, you know, some money and get something out on the street. Um, I think that would do harm to, to society. Um, and so in the context of, of that, I, I'll say, you know, I'm, I'm more than happy to look at uh, any of the proposals um, to, you know, I'm, I'm open-minded to the proposals, but I, I want to be very, very cautious. And I've, like I said, I'm a stakeholder. I've got kids, and I, I'm very concerned about gateway drugs um, uh, opening up the uh, the heroin addictions. Um, that's a concern. But I also respect um, the physician-patient relationship, and I think that uh, um, there's some uh, there's some hard evidence that shows that uh, that that is. Um, you know, medical uses um, may, uh, through prescriptions may be um, uh, a healing remedy. So I want to be careful not to jump in and, and criticize um, something uh, without uh, being more careful to, to look at the evidence. Do you support Maryland's process then of making medical marijuana more viable? I, I am not um, as knowledgeable of the specifics of the Maryland approach to know whether or not I can I can support it or not. Um, from what I've heard, there's some uh, there's some real positives and there's some concerns. So I would like to look at more specifically what the options that are being presented are, and the approach that's being taken before I um, make a definitive stance. And it's really not the focus of my um, my run. My my run is focused more on on the bigger issues, the the federal issues of bringing jobs here of making sure that we can um, uh, grow our economy so that people actually can enjoy life, that we're not sitting in traffic for three hours a day. Um, you know, that's where health can be improved. I mean, if we can get home and get to the gym and just be able to kick back and relax and, you know, open a cold one, that, that's much better than sitting around um, uh, in traffic, so. Mm -hmm. You talked about uh, business. So um, your opponent talks a lot about a green deal for the country that would, you know, promote um, clean energy, green jobs, that sort of thing. Is that how you think um, the federal government should involve itself in business creation, or do you have different ideas? Yeah, no, I, that's probably a, a big difference between my opponent and myself. Um, uh, his number one issue is a sweeping green tax or a sweeping carbon tax. Um, I do not want to tax the middle class. I think that will uh, impact small business, eliminate jobs, will hurt us. Um, I'm an environmentally conscious person, though. You know, I, I grew up uh, on a farm, and I love to uh, fish, hunt, hike. You know, I'm outdoors a lot. We, we enjoy the outdoors. My father-in-law is a retired natural resources officer, and um, I respect and, and understand the need that we have to sustain our, our parks and make sure we have 
um, clean energy. Um, but at the same time, we've got to make sure that we're smart about it. And so I'm proposing that we reduce the federal regulations, and which takes three to seven years to get a new nuclear plant um, licensed in America, um, because that's shown to be the only energy source that can power whole cities at um, very safe uh, opportunities with zero greenhouse gas effect. And right now, we're piling it on our corporations that want to do this. And instead, where are these new nuclear plants being built? Well, the World, World Nuclear Forum in Paris, France uh, last month, uh, if, you, if you go on their website, you can see I, I watched some of these uh, video clips. France, China, uh, India. I mean, some of these countries are building 20, 30 nuclear plants. Iran, we actually provided a pathway through the, the bad Iran deal to allow Iran to have nuclear clean energy, and yet we don't allow that here um, at, the, uh, uh, at the same opportunity. So that would be an approach, I think, and I'm al also an all of the above person. I mean, look, if, if we can make people more independent, then let's consider that. I don't like welfare handouts in terms of uh, funding other people's opportunities to then make money on solar panels. I think we need to be cautious there, but at the same time, uh, I think we need to have incentives, maybe tax credits rather than an outright grant, to allow people like myself to put solar panels up and to be um, able to generate electricity in a way that is um, uh, clean and, and green. Is there a place for fracking as part of America's energy plan? Well, that's another loaded political question, and uh, it's a good one. Um, my um, understanding of fracking is that there are, they have developed newer and safer ways to protect our, wells, our water supply and our wells. Um, I, so my approach is to uh, study the evidence carefully and to follow the governor's lead on this, which is um, focusing on safe ways of creating opportunities to get the natural gas that could be very useful and clean uh, without an outright ban. And my opponent, that would be the difference between myself and my opponent on that. My, I want to be careful, but I don't want to ban natural gas. It is a clean energy source. So I think we can be smart enough to know how to uh, extract it without um, harming anyone. Uh, you know, this is an age where we can learn how to do that, and, and yet my opponent would support an outright ban. In fact, he did. He voted for an outright ban in Maryland, which uh, was then passed. Um, on national security, this year is going to mark um, 15 years since the September 11th terrorist attacks. Do you think that America is safer today than it was then? And, and what do you think are the most important foreign policy issues that we face? You know, I, I respect our men and women in, uh, in uniform and appreciate how they are keeping us safe. I appreciate how... Um, appreciate anyone who's worked on this issue and I think today um, we are facing um, a different kind of threat that's growing and so it's um, it is a serious concern I, I don't know that um, we can say that we are clear of the issues when we look at France and we see a new soft terror target approach that's beyond what we've seen before um, necessarily and within every 84 hours uh, since June uh, from the last I checked, ISIS has struck us in a major way. Uh, 
either on our soil or on a European, uh, in a European city like Brussels, like Paris, like uh, Nice, France. And you look at those situations where a guy drove a tractor trailer truck through a concert that killed all those people. This is horrendous. We've got to be careful. We've got to be alert. And I think we need to step up our game uh, because um, ISIS is here. Um, FBI, the FBI director, the CIA, they've indicated that um, uh, this is a clear and present danger. It's not just a bunch of, of uh, crazies running around in the back of a pickup truck like some might want us to, to think. It's, um, it's an international network of people that want to kill us, and they're doing it, and we need to stop them. And that's absolutely what I want to uh, ensure that we do to protect our families in our district here in Maryland. But you said on American soil? Absolutely, San Bernardino, Orlando, these are ISIS identifiers. And the way, you know, some people might discount that and say, well, you can't prove that uh, these are uh, legitimate um, international operations. Well, yes, actually, uh, if you look at the national security reports, um, they are very much part of it because the strategy ISIS is implementing uh, and, if, and they have released as part of their instructions internationally for their uh, for their um, soft terror training uh, is to have people who are not directly connected willing to follow their instructions and, and operate according to plan. And so that is how we're getting not only an international um, infiltration through lax immigration programs, but we're also seeing um, uh, people who some would call a lone wolf. They're not truly lone wolves in that sense because they are directly connected to these um, cells that are actually training and producing these documents uh, from what we've seen in, in the media reports as well as in, in the uh, national security um, analysis. So I think it's a concern that we need to be very, very cautious about and we need to uh, proceed with uh, um, aggressively to stop and tend to destroy. What what do you see as a as a reasonable balance between civil liberties and um, efforts to combat terrorism? We've seen the USA Patriot Act. Uh, we've seen some of the tactics the NSA has used through the release of the documents by Edward Snowden. Um, do you feel like we are going too far, or are these all important measures that will benefit the country in the long run? Well, that's very, very uh, complex issues, and, and, and rightly so. I think we make a mistake to give up our civil liberties in the face of, uh, of terror. I think uh, Ben Franklin said, uh, whoever were to give up their liberty uh, for safety deserves neither. And you know, so we have to strike a balance. And the balance that I would, I would focus on is making sure the Constitution is followed whenever there's a, uh, uh, a need for uh, intelligence services to quickly act. Uh, we have the opportunity to uh, still obtain warrants for those who are U.S. citizens, and we need to do that. Uh, we, we can't uh, just waive our right to, to uh, our Fourth Amendment uh, uh, liberty. And so I think there are procedures. When I was um, in law school, I was trained by some national security staff, including Admiral Vern Clark and former Attorney General John Ashcroft, and they taught a class on this. And one of the things that they taught about the USA Patriot Act is that in all of its um, uh, potential uh, dislike by, by so much of society on both the left and the right, um, 
some of the key things that are being missed is that it still provides for a uh, mandatory warrant system. I think we can improve those requirements, but I don't think we should scrap the whole approach because the, the, the approach to fight terror must include an aggressive approach, but at the same time we must protect our civil liberties. And so I, I'm not um, uh, in agreement with uh, secret courts uh, in a long term. So the FISA court is something that should be a short-term focus only. I think that was the intent. I think that the warrants that um, uh, should be obtained uh, must be upon probable cause. And I think that our law enforcement needs to be supported in that and that they can uh, do, do their job and protect us without being uh, uh, fearful that they're going to get sued. Uh, so I think there's a balance that we can move forward with to make sure the rules are very clear and, and that um, United States citizens are protected. And what do you think about what Edward Snowden did? You know, I, I, I disagree with anyone that endangers people's lives by divulging information. At the same time, I have defended in court whistleblowers. So I strongly believe in uh, the right to um, make sure that um, uh, if someone uh, you know, is bringing forth violations of law that is done legally, I think he did it, probably went about it the wrong way. Um, so I, you know, I, I think that the absconding to Russia is a concern to me as well. It, it kind of makes the appearance as if uh, the Russians you know, were somehow behind his release of information. I don't know that that's the case, but um, certainly I think, uh, I think we need to uh, protect our national security and, and a, a release of information uh, such as he did was just endangering our, our national security. And that's you know, said with sympathy towards um, anyone who serves who wants to be a whistleblower because they feel like they must. But I think there are channels the U.S. government provides to do that in a way that protects national security, and I don't think Mr. Snowden did it. What do you think about um, federal funding levels for different agencies, including those located in Frederick County? Are there areas you would pare back, or you know, how would you advocate for some of the local institutions? Well, I, I want to strengthen our national defense while saving money um, by cutting fraud and waste out. So anything I can do, if I'm privileged with representing Frederick County in, in the U.S. Congress, I'm going to fight hard for dollars to come back here for national security projects, for the U.S. military to um, not have to cannibalize its planes from the graveyard and uh, out west uh, like they're currently doing. Um, and I think we need to, to try to bring those jobs here. Um, in terms of um, you know, opportunities to save money, I think if we're going to have a strong federal government, which we need, we've got to make sure we've, uh, we're not overspending and, and wasting resources. And there's very, there are very few federal workers that I know and talk to and, and uh, uh, you know, friends of mine uh, in the area here that won't say off record, there is so much waste that something's got to be done about it. And so I would try to approach this with a very careful um, focus to to try to uh, save those dollars with uh, cutting out fraud and waste. <coughs> it's possible in this election with Senator Mikulski not seeking another term that Maryland could end up with an all-male delegation. Is that important to have women in the delegation? And um, how do you explain uh, people who question you about that? 
Well, I love the fact that uh, my friends that are running are women uh, and great leaders. Uh, Senator Kathy Schlega is running, and I think she has a great opportunity to win this. Um, Senator Mikulski's seat then would stay uh, in in the uh, in the hands of a, a fine lady if 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 Kathy can win, and I know she can. Uh, the governor's endorsed Kathy Schlega. Um, and then for the 6th District, another great lady, Ami Hober, who's a national security expert. Um, she's fantastic. I think she's going to pull it off as well. And I think then we'll have a balanced delegation. Um, I hope to be part of that balance as well. And what are, what are you, your thoughts on some of the issues that get referred to as women's issues? Um, uh, the right to an abortion or the right to life? Um, and then also federal government um, funding for Planned Parenthood. Well, I think if you look at my family picture, you can see I'm pro-life. You know, eight children, four boys, four girls, working on the ball team. <laughs> and, you know, I, I am pro-life. I'm not ashamed of that. Um, I am uh, thrilled and happy to speak with uh, women and all residents. That's one of the things that I tell everybody on the campaign trail is, if I'm elected, well, even now, uh, before being elected, my office, my ears are open to you. So I want to hear your thoughts and concerns. I want to listen to you. I'm not somebody who's ready to run um, without uh, uh, entertaining anyone else's viewpoint. Um, so that's my heart on that. And you know, I, I as as far as um, uh, Planned Parenthood funding, you know, that issue was uh, a very big issue last year because of um, you know, the allegations of peddling uh, the parts of the babies, and that was very disgusting to a lot of people on both sides of the aisle on, on this issue, and that's been a concern of mine, and so I would, um, you know, I would uh, continue to um, express any concern of any kind of uh, tax dollars going for that kind of uh, uh, selling of, uh, you know, baby body parts, as they say. Republicans in Congress have had dozens of votes to repeal Obamacare. Um, do you think that's still a, an approach that should be taken? Or if you accept that it's here, what type of changes would you like to see? Well, you know, that's, that's probably one of the big concerns of all of us that have uh, families and that have to buy health insurance, which we all do now. Um, it's unsustainable to have $11,000 deductibles and $1,500 a month premiums. And so the Affordable Care Act is not so affordable. I think that's a real tragedy. And I think the way to focus a change, uh, the way I would uh, articulate and work for a change, are at least two principles quickly. And that would be I would like to see individual ownership being offered if the employer uh, is so inclined. Because what that does is it is similar to a car insurance policy. It empowers you and me, who happen to be employed, to make our own decisions on what kind of policy we want. That allows for greater competition because then people are marketing directly to me rather than to the corporation. The other thing I'd like to see is a, across the state lines um, being opened up for uh, selling of insurance policies. Uh, again, a lot like car insurance. Right now, I can find policies out of state that I like better, but I can't buy them. And, you know, unless Maryland approves it. So I think we can create incentives. Now we have to balance that with the 11th Amendment right uh, of the state of Maryland to not be dictated by policies in the state of Kansas or Illinois. 
but we can do that. I think we're smart enough to get that work done because when you, when you go home and when you look at what you need, you need a solid plan that doesn't cost you an arm and a leg. Uh, and we can, we can do that, I think, through opening up those um, competition levels. On another issue, um, you won the Republican nomination in what was the most expensive uh, primary this year. Um, what do you do? You have any thoughts on campaign finance? <laughs> sure. Yeah. Whether or not it needs to be changed at all. Well, let me say that uh, interestingly, I on the Republican side, it was not the most right. expensive. We're talking about the Democratic side. Right. So for, um, you know, for the fact that, uh, you know, in, in their race, there was, um, I think, one of the candidates spent over $12 million. It was a record. Mm -hmm. um, when I looked at some of those reports, I was, um, you know, surprised at the amount of money that was coming in, um, uh, particularly my, in my opponent's uh, race. Um, he, he raised uh, uh, quite a bit of PAC money. And... You know, there was some controversy, I think. Um, the Democrat, um, Mr. Barve, um, did not necessarily appreciate um, some of that. There was some back and forth there. And, you know, I looked at that and I, I think, you know, I'm just a guy that's out here. I'm getting $10 from this lady. I'm getting $100 from this person. I'm, and, and they're saying, look, take this money and go fight for us and, and speak for us and advocate for what you, we all know we need. And so that's what I'm doing. I think... Um, you know, the the whole campaign finance thing is um, is something that um, if we focus on uh, individual freedom, it, it's always going to benefit us, and we need to make sure that foreign money is not coming in here. Um, so I, I think uh, that we can take a balanced approach to make sure we don't cut off uh, speech while also making sure that people like you and me have our voices heard. We could probably go on for some time, but we need to wrap things up. Um, are there any important issues that we haven't touched on here, and where could people go to find out more about those? Sure. Well, thank you. Um, I'm on Twitter. I'm actually, uh, I found my son told me that's an old, uh, older people's um, app, and I just started into it thinking it was the younger generation. Well, I'm already <laughs> on, so, so now I'm trying to learn Snapchat, and I can't figure that out yet. But I'm on Snapchat. I'm on uh Twitter. I'm on Instagram. Twitter is probably the number one area to see uh, my posts because I'm trying to s maintain that frequently, and that's Dan Cox for Congress. That's Dan Cox, the number four Congress. My website is coxforcongress.org, and the issues that I've listed, I've uh, you know, I, I had about 15. My opponent and I both apparently like to, to discuss a lot of issues. He has a lot of issues on his website. I had about 15, and, and I, I brought it down into four that I think are, are crucial, jobs and the economy. We all agree on this. We've got to bring jobs back, and I think we can do that through allowing the, um, the dollars overseas to come back through lowering our regulatory process. And our, There's 3,000 pending small business regulations right now. I want to go to Washington and say, no, enough is enough. We can bring jobs back. Rebuild the military. I mean, it is, it is a serious issue. I am not for um, overextending ourselves and, and getting involved in foreign wars if we can stay out of it. But we've got to have a defense uh, for our own peace. And right now, you know, I've studied this. I've read the reports. I've got a buddy of mine who is a JAG officer uh, who can't go on record, obviously. 
but uh, in my own studies with the public record, um, there is a serious need to improve our basic abilities to not be cannibalizing our machines. And, and then um, health care, you know, we've got to do open heart surgery and fix the Affordable Care Act. And the rule of law would be important to me. I think all of us know that Washington corruption is harming us. It's not what we are as a nation. We've got to end the career politicians. We've got to end the corruption. And I would like to go and work on that and to do it. So thanks for your time. Yeah, great. Thank you for joining us. In the Booth is produced by Graham Cullen, Chris Sands, Jeremy Bauerwolf, and myself. Our theme music is courtesy of FNP reporter and rocker Kelsey Luce. If it's politics and it's Frederick, we hope you'll join us for the conversation in the booth.